Well, we talked last week about uh, sin as it's uh, communicated in the Old Testament. And last week, I talked about how we're going through this section on sin, the meaning of sin, what is it? We looked at uh, 10 or so Hebrew words that are used in the Old Testament to give definition to sin. There are a lot more than 10, but we looked at 10, and tonight we're going to start by looking at some of the basic words in the New Testament. Then tonight, God willing, we're going to turn to the source of sin, where does it come from, the scope of sin, how far does it extend, and then ultimately the solution to sin, uh, where is the solution to sin found? In the New Testament, there is one basic word that is also used in the Old Testament in the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. There's one basic word that's used multiple times to define who we are as sinners. It is the Greek word harmatia. It means to miss the mark. It's found 500 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it's found 170 times in the New Testament. It is the word that is used in Romans 3.23, which is our memory verse for this month. And Rebecca has been choosing our memory verses. She's been very kind to us this month in choosing Romans 3.23, so I'm probably going to start choosing them. I don't think I'm going to be that kind next month. I think I'm going to expand the reach uh, for the memory verse. All have sinned. Harmatia. That's who we are by nature. All of sin, we're born in sin, and by nature we are sinners. All of sin and fall short. We miss the mark of the glory of God. Now, the essence of who we are as sinners from birth is manifest in this word that I put on the board not to uh, impress, but it's a wonderful biblical word. Adikia, ah means without or not. Uh, Dikia means righteousness. So we are born without righteousness. We are born without goodness. We're born without any kind of right relationship with God. This is who we are from birth. Now, we are not born outside God having a relationship with us, and that relationship is a relationship of judgment and wrath. From the moment we're born, we're born in sin, under the authority of sin, and thus under the rightful wrath and judgment of God. Now, that does not negate the reality that John 3.16 is true and other verses that teach that we are all loved by God. But one of the realities that biblically we have to distinguish, that we're not good at distinguishing in our culture, is the distinguishment of the distinction between love and acceptance. To be loved by God doesn't necessarily mean you're accepted by God. I think there are many people in our churches who believe that when we say, for God so loved the world, we can immediately conclude that every human in the world is accepted by God. That's simply not true. 
We are loved by God, but we're accepted by God only through what God has done in Jesus Christ to redeem and restore his people to himself. We are born in Adikia. We're born in unrighteousness. This unrighteousness is due to who we are from birth and by nature. We are those who from birth by nature deny and defy the law of God. Now that means that we are anomia. Ah means without. Nomia is the word for law. And what this means is that from the moment we are born, we live rejecting God's standard, refusing to acknowledge God's standard. Because what we want to do, and this is what we all do, is that we want to establish a standard for being right with God with which we can live. So we come up with a standard that is our standard that may be shared by others around us, and it is against the standard that God has set, which turns us into antinomians. Now that's a big word, antinomians. Anti, anti means against, in rebellion, rejection. Nomia means the law of God. So what does it mean when I say, and I would say, that the gospel that is preached in the American culture in most churches is antinomian? So what do you mean by that? Al, what do you mean by that? This is what I mean. It is a gospel that does not ever reference God's standard for being right with him. And God's standard is his law. You and I will never know how sinful we are until we know God's standard. So what we have done is we've created a gospel that does not reference that standard. You need Jesus. Is that true? I'm not pointing at you. <laughs> we need Jesus. Is that true? The follow-up question is what? Why? Why do I? Your answer to that question is critical. My answer to that question is critical. And the first answer biblically is because I can't be righteous on my own because I can't achieve on my own God's standard. And if I can't achieve God's standard by what I do or say, then I remain under the wrath and judgment of God. And I need to be delivered from the wrath of God so that I can be acceptable to God. That's why I need Jesus. Now, I may be dead wrong about this, but I think the typical response given in our culture to why do I need Jesus is so I don't go to hell. Or so I will go to heaven. We need to learn to get way beyond that in order to communicate the biblical truth about why it is that we need Jesus. And to do that, we need to learn what the Bible teaches about who we are as sinners. 
We are those who are born in sin and live in sin because we refuse to accept God's standard. We are against the law of God. And it's manifest in evil thoughts, evil speech, evil deeds. Uh, Turn again to Romans 1. I said last week I still believe, (laughs) seeing nothing to change this, that this is one of the most important passages for our culture in our day in the Bible. Romans 1. Let me just back up to uh, verse 24 because I've spent a lot of time lately looking at these verses because uh, there is something here that is perplexing to me, and when something perplexes me, I want to figure out from God's perspective, in God's Word, what is the reason for the way the Scripture is written. So up to now... I want to explain to you my understanding, and this could be way off. I hope not, but it could be, of why this is written this way. So verse 24, God gave them up. That is because human beings by nature rejected God's standard and rejected God's revelation of himself. Therefore, God gave them up, or he handed them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature. That is, they worshiped and served what they created that met their standards for being right with God rather than the creator, rather than bowing before God's sovereignty who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And we read that and we say that's simple. We see that. We understand that this is sin. This is gross sin. This is vile sin. This is egregious sin. Sin against God. This is simple to see. And so we want to read this and say, I'm glad I'm not like these other folks. I go to church and I pay my tithe and I read my Sunday school lesson and I am involved in the church. I'm not like these people. I'm not this kind of sinner. So I must not be under the wrath of God. But then we have to keep reading. I think what Paul is doing here is showing us where sin goes in a culture when we don't know who God is and we don't know how sinful we are. And we often don't know how sinful we are because we are prone to excuse ordinary sins. But ordinary sins are as egregious in the sight of God as these extraordinary sins. That's why Paul writes the way he does. So he says in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, that is, they're rebelling against God, refusing to receive God, rejecting God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do not, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Just by the way, as I read through this list, Paul is going to get at some point every one of us in this room. That's why he writes it this way. Because he knows that pious religious people are prone to raise our hands and say, Go get those homosexuals, Paul. Go get those lesbians, Paul. Go get those transgender people, Paul. Go get them. They're under God's wrath and bring it on. But then he talks to you and me who are in the same place they're in because we're all under sin. And he gets us all. Listen to what he says. You find your place here. Don't shout when you see yourself. Evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips. We making any check marks here? Slanderers. Haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now listen. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Now here's Al's paraphrase of that last sentence. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they hang out with people who do them so that they can approve each one, one, each other in our sin. There is none righteous, no, not one. And this unrighteousness is manifest in the heart of every person born into the world. Where does it lead? It leads to our rejection of all boundaries. All boundaries. We don't like boundaries. When I was a six-year-old, I was in a talent show. Now, I know you won't believe this, but my act was singing. And I rode out on a stage on one of those little horses. You know, you sat on that horse and you put your feet down. The horse rose up and moved along, and I came all the way to the mic and I sang the song. Now, unless you're over 60, you've never heard of this song, Don't Fence Me In. Y'all ever heard that song? Gene Autry sang that song. You may never have heard of Gene Autry either. 
But he sang that song, Don't Fence Me In. We want to say to anybody, you're not going to fence me in. I will set my own boundaries. Now, that's what sin does to us. Look at uh, Romans 2.23. Let's go to Romans. Let's just stay in Romans. Turn the page. <clears throat> we'll begin at verse 17. Paul is making the point in this part of Romans that Gentiles and Jews are all under sin. There's no one who is not under sin. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth, all these good things, wonderful things, if you know all of this, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, because you as Jewish people establish your own rules and the rules that God has sent, you interpret them so that you can fit them into the framework of your life, living as you desire to live. Go over to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, Paul's dealing with this same kind of issue then here. He asked the question in verse 19 of chapter 3, why then the law? Why do we have the law? He answers it. It was added because of transgressions. God wants us to see our sin and to know our sin, and to be without excuse, so he gives us the law. And he, did, he does until the offspring should come to whom the promise is made. It was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Go back to Exodus 19. And God gives us this good law for our blessing and benefit so that we could see our sins and see how we fall short of the glory of God and know the only boundary that is set for us is not set by ourselves, it's set by the law of God. And we all violate those boundaries. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14. This is the section in which Paul is speaking to the church in Ephesus, speaking specifically to Timothy about the proper order in the church. And the proper order for the church, Paul is plain here, is that the church is led by godly men. Godly women in the church have their rightful role and place in service and ministry. In fact, if you listen carefully to the announcements, most of them are about what our women in this church are doing and what they're leading in to minister in the name of Jesus to other people. 
But Paul makes it clear in 1 Timothy that the leadership role for teaching the word of God in the church is given to men. And then he says in verse 14, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. It is the sin that led to the situation where God has given this leadership responsibility to men, and you and I know this, we men who know this, we know this for sure, we cannot do it out of our nature, we simply can't, because we are weaker than the women, and we need God's grace and spirit and help in order to lead. But what if we violate God's boundary? What about the church who says, that teaching about men being the spiritual leaders in the home and the church, that teaching is antiquated. We don't believe it's applicable anymore. We live in a different time and a different day. What are we saying? We make our own boundaries. We're going to set up our own system so that we can speak to people in our day. Do you know that uh, among many millennials in our generation, many millennials, many of whom are absolutely wanting to follow and be faithful to Jesus, at their age probably more so than many of us who are boomers wanted to follow and be faithful to Jesus when we were their age. But among many millennials, there's one category that they, many of them refuse to submit to in terms of biblical teaching. Do you know what it is? They refuse to submit to the teaching of the Bible that sex is reserved for marriage and that living together prior to marriage is a sin against God. They just refuse to submit to that. Because the nature of the culture in which they live is a culture where so much of that is happening that it's become common. And many of them will say, nobody seems to care. And it seems to be antiquated to think that something like that would be condemned by the church. Therein they make a huge mistake. It's not the church that condemns it, is it? It's the Word of God. And the Word of God is simply the standard for us who are in the church. So we set our own boundaries and we define obedience in our own terms. Now, where does this lead? If you and I... In sin, as sinners, if we set our own boundaries, establish our own rules, make up our own system of morality according to the time in which we live, where does that lead? It leads to us going astray mentally and morally. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, we will look at some of these passages.
The Sadducees had come to Jesus to ask him a question about the resurrection. They didn't believe in the resurrection. So they're trying to trick him. And then in verse 29, Jesus answered them, you're wrong. These are religious people, exceedingly religious people. Jesus answered them, you're wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. This is our standard, the scriptures. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Look over at Matthew chapter 24. Verses 4 and 5. Jesus answered, See that no one leads you astray. In every age there are those who purport to be gospel teachers and gospel preachers that are leading many astray. Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come to you in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. When we set our own boundaries, it will lead us astray mentally in terms of how we think and morally in terms of how we act. This is what happens when you and I are talking with people that profess to be believers and they're living in open sin. Have you had that situation? They're just living openly in sin. Before you condemn them, you ought to ask them a lot of questions. You ought to demonstrate to them that you love them. And as you ask those questions, what you're after discerning is what is their standard? What are their boundaries? And you will get the answer you're looking for because the answer will be their standard is within themselves, driven by their feelings and their experience, and their understanding of God, if you listen closely, contains no component of holiness, no component of justice, no component of righteousness. Their God is only, exclusively, a God of love and a God of mercy. He is that. But this God is holy and righteous and just, and we do not bend his standards in order to fit our lives or somebody else's lives within the framework of how we want to live. It leads to such deception that we find ourselves living mentally, bodily, relationally, and morally in defiance of God's word. And the problem is we don't call it sin. We call it the way life is. We call it the way people are living. We call it the way people are doing things in our time. Turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, that's the word anomia, you didn't live by the law of God, the standard of God. 
When you live by lawlessness, look at the next phrase, it leads to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Give your lives to God. God is sovereign. Give your life to Jesus. He is master. And grow in the righteousness toward holiness. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. We could go to lots and lots of text. I'm just giving you a sample here. This passage has often been used in the context of marriage, though the context of marriage is not mentioned here. I think it could be applied to marriage, of course, but I don't think it's about marriage. I think it's about our relationships. This is what Paul says, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Here you are seeking to be right with God, seeking to live in holiness before God, and you are partnering with someone who's living their own way, doing their own thing. They're simply doing what they should be doing as lost people. Now, there's an important word here. Paul says, don't be unequally yoked. Unequally yoked. The point is, you and I as believers don't share a lot in common with lost people. And the more we invest in trying to be like them, you should be able to finish the sentence. The more you will become like them. You will begin to think as they think. You will begin to talk as they talk. You will begin to act as they act. You will begin to do as they do. And one morning you will wake up and say, how in Jesus' name did I get here? And you got here because you became unequally yoked with unbelievers. Paul makes it even more plain. What, has, what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? He wants us to get the point. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Be careful. Be very careful. 1 Corinthians 6, this is one of my favorite texts in the Bible. I love Paul writing this text. I often go to it. This is why we hang out with lost people, not to spend time and invest energy with them to show them that we like them or that we are like them. We're not. We spend time with them to show them Jesus and to share with them the gospel of Jesus, laced by prayers for them that they would come to Jesus. Verse 9 of 1 Corinthians 6 Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Will not. Not possible. Do not be be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers 
will inherit the kingdom of God. Why this list? Why this group? Well, Paul tells us in verse 11, these are the words I love. And such were some of you. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church, and he has in his head people that had been in this lifestyle, and they're in the Corinthian church. Isn't that amazing? God didn't come to save good people because there are no good people. God came to save sinners, and we're all sinners. And the reason we reach out to sinners is to see them come to Jesus. So Paul's thinking about Bob in the Corinthian church, or Betty in the Corinthian church, and he's thinking, this person used to be in the lifestyle of homosexuality, and this woman used to be in the swindling business, and God saved them. And God brought them into the church. Such were some of you, but you were washed You were sanctified, verse 11. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. When a church is a church, our outreach is towards sinners. We don't, we don't care what neighborhood they live in. We don't care what their educational background is. We don't care. We don't care whether they're like us or radically different from us. We just don't care. We're after sinners. This is a beautiful church made up of all kinds of sinners who were saved by the wonderful, glorious Life-changing grace of God. So what is sin? Let me try to summarize for us what I believe the Bible teaches about sin. Sin is refusing to hear the clear communication of the Word of God that leads to faith, that always leads to faithfulness. We are changed by the gospel, by the grace of God through faith, but there is no faith that does not lead to increasing, growing faithfulness to God. To think we can be saved from sin and stay as we are and live as we lived is to have believed a false gospel and believed the wrong thing about ourselves as sinners. Sin is missing the mark of the identity which God has called us in Christ and exchanging it for the lies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. We miss the mark. We set our own standards. We tweak the gospel so it fits in with our lifestyle. It's enough to get us to heaven, but it's not enough to change us completely. Sin is dismissing God's law. It is defying God's authority as the absolute and total authority over us. The law cannot save us. The law is given to us as that entity that leads us to Jesus because the law shows us how sinful we are. And if this is God's standard and it is God's standard, we can't meet it. 
So we cry out for Jesus out of the conviction of our sin. We cry out for Jesus to save us. You know, in the middle of the 20th century, many Southern Baptist churches went through a season from the 1930s into the 1980s, 90s, when for many of us, many, many people in the church becoming a Christian was not traumatic. Just give your life to Jesus. Just do what you need to do. You know what we lost during that time? We lost the weight of sin. We lost the sense of this deep conviction of sin. We lost the fact that we really are sinners. And we really are born under the wrath and judgment of God. We need deliverance by the same God that brought us under his wrath and justice. To see the weight and woe of your sin is to be brought traumatically before the presence of a holy God where you just cry out, please God, please God, save me. What does all sin have in common? All sin. Sin causes us to pursue what brings gratification as defined by the world rather than thinking fully about who we are and why we are here. Uh, sin causes us to focus on ourselves and what we want, what we desire, what we crave. That's the nature of sin. Secondly, sin is born out of our desire to be in charge. And we use humility as a word, but we don't employ it often. We love being in charge of our lives. We love being in control. That's the nature of sin. Humility is deliberately bowing before the sovereign God and bowing before our brothers and sisters in the church. And it's deliberately and intentionally saying to one another, I don't have to always be right. Charlie taught a marvelous lesson tonight in First Family. And part of that lesson that spilled over from last week was about humility. Humility means that you would be willing often to lose an argument to preserve the relationship with your brothers and sisters. Now, be honest, how hard is that for us as humans, as sinners? How hard is that? Only those broken by the Spirit of God because we are sinners can do that. Number three, sin is driven by selfishness, not true love. True love is self-denying. It's dying to ourselves. It's not thinking of ourselves. It's thinking of others. Sin is idolatry. Worship at altars other than God. We worship at man-made altars, making God in our own image. Sin is unbelief. Unbelief doesn't, doesn't push us toward loving and seeking to be loyal to the Word of God. I know I'm talking to the choir on Sunday nights. I know this. 
But one of the things that's most encouraging to me about being the pastor of this church is that there's so many in this church that when I talk about loving God's Word and being loyal to God's Word, you know what I'm talking about, and you're living it out every day. Do you know there are churches that if I were to talk like that, I would be talking to many, many, many people in that church that have no idea what it means to love God's Word and to be loyal to God's Word, even to read God's Word. That's common in many of our churches. Sin is rebellion against God rather than submitting in obedience to God. That is why to anticipate the solution to sin, that is why you and I are greatly delighted, I mean greatly delighted, that when God sent Jesus to us, and at the end of his life when God sent Jesus to the cross, what Jesus purchased that day for you as a believer and me as a believer What he purchased for us was deliverance forever from the punishment of sin. What if you had to stand before God one day and pay for your sin? You don't have to because Jesus has paid for it. The punishment that I deserve for my sin, he's taken. That punishment is gone. When God sent Jesus to the cross, he paid for the power of sin in my life. Sin does not have to rule your life. Those things that rule your life as sin are not God's issue in terms of God's ability to deliver. Those are your issues that ought to cause you great pain in your life. Great sorrow, sadness, struggle, grief. You want them gone. John Owen said, if you are not killing sin in your life every day, sin will be killing you. It's one way or the other. Sometimes the most critical spirits in a church are people who are fighting sin, don't want to face the sin they're fighting, and surely don't want to tell anybody. And one of these days, by God's grace, the very presence of sin will be gone. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a day the first day of your eternity when you will never think a bad thought and you will never say a bad word and you will never do a bad deed forever and ever and ever because sin is gone. Well, we're going to talk about the source of sin later and talk about the solution to sin, the scope of sin. Dustin and Rebecca will be moving this week, and uh, we're going to put out an e-news later because they're going to need some help loading a truck, and we're going to put out an e-news. So if you have some time this week and and, um, can help them out. I told Ann when I got home this morning... um, that it speaks volumes of you two that you showed up in church this morning. I mean, it speaks volumes of you two that you were here. And I'm grateful to God for that. Um, 
Because a church is not a place to which we go. It's not programs in which we participate. Church is a family to which we belong. I don't know how many of us really know that. Honestly, it's one of my great concerns as a pastor. We've turned the church in our day into a place to which we go to participate in programs that make us happy. That's not what a church is. That is far from what a church is. Church is your primary family as a child of God to which you belong. And to leave a church is to leave a family. So as long as you're in the area, you need to be a part of that family. You know, one of these days I'm going to walk away from this church. I'm going to retire. Some of you are saying, would you please tell us when? We would be happy to know. (laughs) And one of my great struggles, Ann will tell you this. One of my great struggles about even thinking about retirements is this church is not a place where I work. It is not a place where I work. This is not my job. This is my family. And the hardest thing for me will be leaving my family. That's what a church is. Sin gets in the way, doesn't it? We sin against each other. We hurt each other. Sometimes we do it intentionally. Sometimes we do it, praise God, unintentionally. But at the end of the day, the church is that family where even when we hurt each other's feelings and say bad things to each other and do things we ought not to do to each other, at the end of the day, God is our father. Jesus is our older brother. And we are brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, for all eternity. Aren't you glad? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this night you've given us. God, I would love to live in a world without sin. I would love to live two hours without sin. And maybe even that is idealistic. And God, I pray that you would help us to recognize who we are in the light of who you are and to know that our sins have been forgiven, washed away in the blood of Jesus at Calvary. That the remnants of sin still remain in us because we are sinners. But that sin that remains in us, particularly those habitual sins, those sins that will not leave us alone, those sins that we hate, I pray that you would help us never to tolerate them never to nurture them, and never, God, to act like it's just okay because we're humans and we're Romans 7 people. No, we're Romans 7 people, but praise your name, we're Romans 8 people. That you have given us an overwhelming victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, and we need to claim that victory and celebrate that victory and live from it. We pray for Dustin and Rebecca as they uh, wrap up things here this week and make their way to Oklahoma, and we pray for a wonderful start to their ministry there. And we pray that you would protect them and watch over them, continue to grow them, continue to use them, continue to minister to them and through them. We thank you again for this night and the week ahead of us, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.